Hello, I'm Andrew Dodd. This is Change Agents, a series about change and the people who make it happen. Today, the birth of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I bumped into Tony Abbott in the street in Sydney. I said to him, oh, Mr Abbott, I'm hearing you supporting the NDIS and I'm so pleased. And he said, well, normally I'm Mr No, but on this occasion, I'm Mr Yes. This is a classic case of market failure. There was no insurance available and it's a classic issue to which insurance applies because the whole population is at risk. The National Disability Insurance Scheme is Australia's biggest social reform this century. By 2022, it's estimated half a million people will be using it to access better disability support. And by then, it'll cost around $25 billion a year, funded in part by an increase in the Medicare levy. Today, we'll meet two of its founders. Bruce Bonahady is the chairman, and Rhonda Galbally is a board member of the NDIA, the agency that runs the NDIS. They told a forum at Swinburne University that the idea has been around for a long time, as far back as the Whitlam years. Whitlam, really following the introduction of Medicare, wanted to have a national compensation scheme. A similar scheme uh, was introduced in New Zealand, but covering just people with disabilities who acquired that disability through an accident. So it was a narrower scheme than what we have now. But the idea that you could take the thinking that applies to workers' compensation or motor vehicle compensation schemes and apply that to disability more generally dates back to then and in fact is part of a movement that started in the 1890s when the first compulsory workers' compensation schemes were developed in fact in Germany. Am I right in saying it was on the books at the time that um, the Whitlam government was dismissed and that the Fraser government decided not to carry through with it? Yes, it was due to be debated in Parliament on the 11th of November 1975 and then Fraser decided not to uh, to carry on the reform. So obviously then there wasn't the bipartisanship that characterised what happened with the NDIS later? No, there was no bipartisanship around that and in fact there was no bipartisanship at that stage around universal health insurance either. I've read that it was scuttled in part because the insurers saw that it was against their interest to support something that would undermine, in fact, their business models. So they were opposed to it. Uh, look, I, um, I can't recall, I, I don't know that detail. I think, I think the point about the NDIS, though, is that it provides insurance where there was no insurance before. There was no, there was no private insurer who will insure someone who is born with a disability or acquires a, you know, a disability through a progressive uh, medical condition uh, and will ensure uh, catastrophic risk. There, this is a classic case of market failure. There was no insurance available and it's a classic issue to which insurance applies because the whole population is at risk. The consequences of major disability on those directly affected and their families uh, is enormous. And so if we all pay a small amount, then we can insure us all and it is the most efficient and effective way as a society to support people with disabilities. And in fact, if you go back to the work of Kenneth Arrow in the 1960s, who won a Nobel Prize 
for his work on insurance. Uh, he, in his work, where he advocated or demonstrated that universal health insurance is the most efficient way for communities to support the risk of adverse health outcomes, he also had a category for what he called failure to recover, in other words, permanent disability. So already in the 1960s, the academic work had been done to demonstrate the veracity of this scheme. But what was missing then was that the disability rights movement hadn't started in Australia and there was no mobilisation or interest. Um, in America, it started really for the world with the Vietnam vets coming back and just not putting up with being put in institutions. You know, they said, no way, and started the independent living movement. And ours would have started just in tiny little seeds mm. towards the end of the 70s. And then in the early 80s, had a small voice around, well, not so small, because they were responsible for deinstitutionalisation, that movement then. But then, you know, by the time it came around for the NDIS, that mobilisation possibility was just as important as the idea. Because if the idea had been there, which Bruce um, designed, without the possibility of the mobilisation, then we'd be back where we were, you know, with the Whitlam era. So I think that's a very important part of the question of how come, you know. One of the people who deserves a lot of credit in bringing about the NDIS is the former Deputy Prime Minister, Brian Howe. It said that back in 2005, he went back to the Woodhouse report, this report that had been commissioned by the Whitlam government, pulled it off the shelf, had a look at it, and started thinking about an insurance scheme that could address some of these issues. How fundamental was he to this? Well, he was certainly fundamental to my involvement. I, in 2005, I was just starting to be interested in disability reform. Uh, I was very conscious that there was chronic underfunding. Many people were not getting the support they, they needed, either uh, not enough support or were missing out entirely. And I was on a board with Brian at the time and I said to him I wanted to talk to him about disability reform. And what he said to me was, you've got to stop thinking about disability policy as welfare and start thinking about it as risk and insurance and investment. And it was one of those sort of light bulb moments. So, so for me, it became a catalyst for me to start to explore how insurance could be applied to people with disability more generally. And uh, I very quickly came across the work of John Walsh, who had developed a whole scheme for anyone who was catastrophically injured, not just those who were catastrophically injured in motor vehicle accidents or in workplace accidents. And I said to John, well, can we do this for all of disability? And he said, well, of course, we just need the data. He's an actuary. So, um, yeah, that's sort of, you know, I guess both Brian and then John, incredibly important to how we got to where we are today. You were at that stage chair of Urala, is yeah. that right? And you came into this sector because of a personal family connection to these issues. Yeah, so look, I've got um, now two adult sons, both of whom uh, have cerebral palsy. And um, so prior to them being born, then my oldest son is now in his 30s, I knew nothing about disability. And so I became involved in, uh, on the boards of disability organisations. Initially, my focus was on those organisations and their governance. And then, as I said, in 2005, I started to think more broadly. You know, The trigger for that was going to an early intervention centre that uh, Urella was running 
near Dandenong and sitting down with the mother of a disabled boy and she said to me, you know, why can't I, my son get the early intervention services he needs? And I went into this long explanation about, you know, we were trying to, doing the best we could with the funding we had. And then I went away appalled by the answer, you know, that, you know, here was I, me with all my connections and education and I was defending the status quo. And that was really the trigger for me to go and see Brian. You know, I thought, like, I can't, this is just shocking. Uh, and so that's sort of for me how it started. Let's go forward from 2005 to the election of the Rudd government. The appointment of the Parliamentary Secretary for Disability Services, Bill Shorten. In 2007, he was appointed to this position and became very important to what happened, what, what ensued. Well, I think Bill was, was a really the important catalyst in a way. And I think he really was very striking from the very first time I met him in that he didn't um, characterise disability as a sad, tragedy, misery. He characterised it as an outrage, you know, a real abrogation of human rights, actually. And it was sort of like a non-welfare approach to it and also a waste. And he characterised it as wasteful of people's potential. There was a charitable view of disability, you know, and people were very happy to talk at length about, you know, raising money for poor, you know, disadvantaged people, but nobody was talking about it being an absolute outrage. And that was Bill, and behind Bill was Jenny Macklin, who was very seasoned, and they had a, he had a view especially of mobilisation, of how you really... The, the sector was a complete, in complete disarray. Because it had been a charitable, sad story, the media was characterised by burden. And so, you know, Four Corners, there were very important programs which probably helped the case but were really fragmenting because you'd come out of it feeling like cutting your throat as a person with a disability. Because there you were, you'd ruined everyone's lives and their fam the families were just in tragedy. And so people with disabilities organisations didn't, you know, real, it could be use stronger language, but they didn't get on at all with carers organisations and both were united, probably quite rightly, in being highly critical of the services that hadn't changed in about the last 50 decades. They well, were, well, I think I read something you wrote that said that these sectors were effectively at war with each other. They were at war. And they were at war in every country in the world. Like, I can remember reading a Guardian article by the head of the Disability Rights Commission in the UK, and she said, we will not make progress in this country until the carers' orgs get together with people with disabilities' orgs and build an alliance. I want to find out more about how you did that, and we'll get to that in a sec, but I want to go to the 2020 summit now, because that also is very important to this. I've heard snippets of this story, but I want you to tell the full story, Bruce, about how you got this issue on the agenda of the 2020 summit. I don't think you were even a delegate, were you? No, I wasn't <laughs> a delegate. Um, uh, look, uh... there's a club for them. <laughs> Are you the in non, club? non delegates, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, look, I got together with uh, Helen Sykes, who's the chairman of the James McCready Bryan Foundation, and 
one of my closest long-time friends, um, John Nairn, who was a director of that foundation, none of us were invited to the 2020 summit. So we, we got the list of delegates and we wrote to everyone and contacted everyone on that list that we knew. And we knew that no one was going to take our idea to the summit as their top idea. So we knew we were going to be at best their second idea at the summit. So we, we figured that going into the summit, we were somewhere worse than position 1001. But somehow it emerged as one of the half dozen you know, big ideas of the summit. And in, on reflection, it's undoubtedly the big idea of the 2020 summit. How many of them put it as their second idea, do you know? Look, I don't know. Certainly a number of people I know well, pushed it. You how, know. how did you get people to say, okay, I will put your idea down as my second idea in well, this big summit? Well, I, I think it was, it was a compelling case. Everyone knows someone with a disability or they've got a relative who's got a disability and they know how broken that old system was. And... Here was an idea which made reform affordable. And people responded. And I think we had, we had some luck. I think some of, these, some of these things are you work hard and you put all your effort in and you get some lucky breaks. So I think we, we obviously got some lucky breaks um, for that to happen. So it emerges as a big idea and, as you say, probably the big idea of the 2020 summit... And then you were asked by Bill Shorten to look at the feasibility of the scheme and, and actually shore it all up with the right numbers behind well, it. Well, um, we we'd already started on that process. So a group of us, chaired by Ian Silk, worked for 18 months on this report. When you're asked to recommend reform to governments, you, you've got a choice. You, you can have a long shopping list of ideas or you can essentially say we've got one idea. And that's what we did. We said we've got one idea and we think it's a big idea, and we think it requires further examination by government. And I think this is about the time that Bill Shorten says to you and to the, to the various groups, come together, start working as a team, and you led this group that became the Alliance. Well, there was internal to government, and then there was external to government, and I facilitated the external to government coming together of the three, and in fact, it was very moving. And I think about it now in terms of, you know, the maturity of being able to think about the, what it was like from somebody else's point of view. Because, you know, we, we, I can remember the first time we came together with carers and, you know, I was thinking about it from my mother's point of view, how it had been for her and her life when I was disabled as a tiny baby. And it was that you know, expression and then them expressing, seeing it from the person's point of view instead of just from the family's point of view that made it quite a, um, a profound connection, really. And um, internally to government, because the carers' networks had been so powerful um, through, you know, the 90s, there was a view that there should be a separate carers' council but because we'd mobilised and come together on the outside, it just didn't make sense. So that was a persuasion job with Bill and Jenny um, because the bureaucrats were pretty convinced that they should be separate. 
And I can remember them saying, oh, yeah, but carers look after old people. And I thought, well, you don't, you're not a carer of somebody old until they're disabled, actually. Otherwise, you're just a son or a daughter. You don't, you know, you don't play that carer role until they're disabled too. So the topic <coughs> is still disability. So they then agreed to it being set up in joint services, care, these, and this was a leadership group. And then Bill insisted on putting business and unions on. And I was very opposed. I said, oh no, it should just be consumers, you know. And he was proven to be right. Um, they added a tremendously valuable, you know, they opened it out and they took it back to their networks, to the Business Council and you know, the AICD and all sorts of places that had never heard of these issues. So, and the ACTU, like it was really valuable, um, that move to, to broaden that group out. I think the other thing that I need, you know, we need to give Rhonda credit for is the alliance was her brainchild. You know, this, this alliance outside government. And, you know, it's a world first. You know, this is the first time anywhere in the world that the sector having split it, if you like, as part of the disability rights movement was, you know, as a sign of its maturity, came together to prosecute the case for big reform, you know, and you only get big reform when you've got unity and a single voice and single point of advocacy to government and the community. Uh, you were saying earlier that some were pushing to include education in the campaign and other aspects of disability reform that were required, and it was about narrowing it down to one achievable, yes, and I admittedly mean, I, ambitious, but one achievable goal. Yeah, and I the trouble also, it was a matter of us, Bruce and I, thinking that the NDIS should be the focus, but also there wasn't, we decided to only work on something we could agree on. And education's still reasonably controversial in that some of the carers felt special ed was good and the people with disabilities organisations didn't agree with that. So we put it off the agenda instead of having another war about, you know, content. Whereas the NDIS, everyone agreed. The NDIS was and is a unifying idea. Yeah. Because it says the support you will receive is based on your need. It's no longer based on where you acquired your disability, when you acquired your disability, how you acquired your disability or what your type of disability is, you know, whether you've got autism or cerebral palsy or spina bifida. It says need is the determinant and that the support you, you get, you receive, is commensurate with that need. And so we were able to work through then uh, because even within that there was still a lot of debate about you know, in terms of language and other issues that we had to get right before we could agree that this was the, the single issue that we were going to pursue above all other. Can I, can I ask you about the mobilisation? Because at one stage, in fact, you still have these kind of numbers, 150,000 people reachable by email who then have the flow on effect of contacting others. The Alliance didn't have a lot of money, but it had this incredibly powerful tool at its disposal, the people involved. I mean, and they were very hot and still are very, very hot. What do you mean by contact? hot? I mean, I mean, they'll take action. Right. I mean, they're not just, um, you know, a contact list where half of them are old and, you know, you've, you've got it all, you haven't cleaned it. Like, this is a hot where people have kept up to date. 
So how they're, they're have you used vitally this interested. How, how have you harnessed this resource? Um, well, it was absolutely instrumental in the camp in getting the scheme. It was wouldn't you agree, Bruce? Yeah, yeah. yeah. very, very important. And it's watching. It's a marvellous, you know, check and balance. And it's watching and any sort of hint of anything that would not make this scheme happen um, in the way that everybody um, thinks that we've signed up for. And, you know, it's there. And it's, it's never before been in my experience in my life that I've ever seen disability be... Um, a really political issue, a hot political issue. It was in America, but that was the Vietnam vets that did that, and they made the American Disability Act that's a really powerful act. But in Australia, it's never been, but now it is, and I think it's not going to go away. I think it's just there, and it's a really important instrument for all of us. Is it true that 120 House of Reps MPs were visited by people with disabilities and carers in the lead-up to key decisions being made? Uh, look, I, I, I don't know whether it was 120, but it was cert uh, certainly I of that order. You was, know, there yeah. were people went to see their MPs, they wrote to them just prior to major COAG meetings. Um, thousands of emails were sent to... Prime Minister and the Premiers. Um, Disability yeah, teams. Do you remember those? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, this was a very active group. It's worth, you know, remembering, you know, that at about the time that the NDIS campaign, the Every Australian Counts campaign was running, uh, the miners were also running a campaign against a mining tax. Mm. Um, they had millions of millions of dollars uh, what the NDIS had were people. You know, this was an old-fashioned, in many ways an old-fashioned grassroots campaign mobilised through social media very, very effectively. Yeah. I mean, I was chairing a hospital at mm. the time and hadn't mentioned it to my hospital, <coughs> to the board or the staff that they might have any interest in it. I should have, you know, I feel... But they came to me and said, oh, we're having a disability tea. And so they were everywhere. They were in hospitals, in local governments. They were in, you know, NGOs, in businesses. A lot of businesses had disability teas. So it was just absolutely... And, you know, when you think who should take credit for that, well, there were state coordinators... Um, that were part of the Every Australian Counts campaign. They did, a, they did a lot of that work. There was Kirsten, there was John, and then there were the folk, you know, Af the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations, Carers Australia, I mean, a very powerful and important organisation. Mm. You know, they'd get it out to their members and they'd all have disability tees. So it wasn't just on the, that 150,000 very warm email contacts of um, <coughs> citizens of Australia. They weren't organisational. It was also all the organisations. Yeah. And uh, then there were all the people who, who just told their stories, you know, without... Yes. Um, you know, without any sense of self-pity, you know. They, they, just, they just explained what life was like as a person with a disability or someone caring for a person with a disability 
you know, frankly and openly. And um, those stories resonated with the Australian public. And um, the statistics also supported those stories. When we found that in the OECD area, Australia ranked last in terms of people with disability living at or below the poverty line. Yeah. And people said, in the midst of this great mining boom, we've got this. You know, so the sense of not just shame, but it can't be allowed to continue, you know, just spread out, you know, from people with disabilities to the community as a whole and culminated in that moment when the government put forward the proposition that the Medicare levy should be increased to fund the NDIS. And 85% of the Australian population said, we're happy. You know, never before has a tax increase been approved overnight. You referred to John Walsh before, mm. and I don't want to skip over that because this guy deserves enormous credit. This is somebody who worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. He was an actuary. Uh, he had an accident at the age of 20 when he was playing rugby, became a quadriplegic, and focused as a result on this special skill he had as a number cruncher, and you guys used him throughout the process to shore up the numbers to convince the politicians and the departments that this thing was achievable. Look, uh, I think, you know, you, this scheme would not have been achieved without John. I agree. You know, yeah. his analytical capability, his enormous intellect, you know, to reef to apply the actuarial principles to disability as a whole, to get the data, to do the analysis, um, to, you know, this, you know, he was a member of the Disability Investment Group. He was then the other commissioner with Patricia Scott on the Productivity Commission. Uh, you know, he's now on the board of the NDIA and chairs our Sustainability Committee. Um, you know, his contribution is giant. You know, he, he'd worked not just in Australia but in New Zealand, so he understood the accident compensation scheme there. He'd worked on most of Australia's workers' comp and, tra and transport accident schemes. Um, and, yes, he's, he, he, his, his significance is, um, is enormous. He came with you both, I understand, to dinner at the lodge with Jenny Macklin and Bill Shorten. Have I got that right? How did that dinner go and what happened? Look, I think um, we, we were at a point um, where this scheme needed um, true bipartisanship at the tops of all, all parties. And, uh, I should say, when, when this happened, Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister. Yes, yeah. so she was the Prime Minister. The, um, the Productivity Commission report had been presented and a number of us got the opportunity to have dinner with her and, and put the case for why uh, the NDIS should be a priority for her government. Because at the end of the day, big reforms need prime ministerial <coughs> approval. Um, Did she need much convincing? I don't think so. I think she, she got it. But I think it was 
it was a it was very important in the sense of hearing from people who had been deeply involved in the development of the idea. And, the, you know, the dinner was not conclusive. We didn't know what the outcome was. You know, we really put our case. It was actually quite short, you know. It probably, you know, the, the business part of it probably only took 45 minutes, you know, for the key points to be made. And then, you know, it went to more general chit-chat, but all the key points were made. We then waited. Soon thereafter, she said, we're going to get this thing done. Mm. It was a very quick response yeah, after, after the commission's yeah. report. Yeah. Was you know, about the but it was that ever. moment where she said, we're going to get it done. And from that point on, the machinery of the Commonwealth Government swung fully into action behind the scheme. What does that look like when it all swings behind you and everyone's on side and wanting to make it happen quickly. It gets momentum. You know, when you In fact, you've that word momentum keeps cropping up from this point yeah, on. Well, I think um, when you have, you know, the Prime Minister's Department, the Treasury, the Finance Department, Department of uh, Family and Housing, Community Services, all behind an idea, and they're the key departments, then it happens. So Medicare levy, from 1.5 to 2%. How did you manage that? Well, look, I think, I think Craig Wallace was very significant in that. He's the chairman of People with Disability Australia. And so he has always been very influential in disability circles. And he wrote uh, an opinion piece on it. And I think that was, uh, I think at a time when the government was thinking through how were they going to fund it. So I think that was... That was certainly uh, influential. I think it's important to remember that, you know, what the Productivity Commission said was that this scheme should be funded out of general revenue. And part of the reason they argued that was because they said this is one of the first things that government should do. It's like defence, you know. And so if there are things that governments, you know, if, if, if taxes aren't going to go up, then there are other things at the margin that government should cease doing in order to ensure that this scheme is funded and is part, you know, their view was this is core government business. I'm just trying to think though, who did come up with the Medicare levy? I actually, I think it is a really interesting question. Mm. Yeah, I can't, I'm, it might have come out of Jenny Macklin's office. Mm. Um, well, I, me I remember reading that Jenny Macklin at one stage went to the Expenditure Review Committee and I don't know how she got away with this, but just coolly asked for $14 billion over five years to make this happen. She said afterwards it was the biggest thing she ever asked for from the ERC. As you'd kind of hope that would be the biggest thing she asked for, but this is a massive amount of money. But she had a very good case. Like, I mean, you make it sound quite casual, where she's a very carefully prepared... You know, she's a, policy, a very top policy person herself, so she would have had all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. So it gathers this momentum, and then, you know, I remember the, the announcement that it would be tied to Medicare, and it almost, there was a little bit of opposition, there was some discussion about it, but what characterised it was how little opposition there was and how quickly the actual opposition, then the coalition, fell in behind it. I, I, think, it, um, I think it's not fair to say, you know, at that point, the opposition fell in behind it. I think that the 
opposition, uh, particularly Tony Abbott and Senator Mitch Fifield, understood this scheme and its significance from very, very early on. So the bipartisanship began much earlier. And I think what they grasped was that it was not just a social policy reform, but it was an economic uh, reform, and that it was about equity and about opportunity. And this is about a quality of opportunity for people with disabilities, and it was about equity for them uh, and their families. And so there was a, a basis for that emerging bipartisanship. And one of the things that we knew already from the time of the Disability Investment Group um, was that this reform was probably going to take seven years in terms of introducing it. It was going to, you know, it was going to be a long period of time that it was going to have to, go, therefore, was going to go across multiple governments. And so to win the support of all parties and all governments, both federal uh, and state. Rhonda, when, when did you know that you'd won the support of Tony Abbott? Well, I, well, we, you know, there was a systematic, mm. like, program of approaching and talking and, and I'd met with um, Mitch Farfield quite often and he had supported it. He'd been very clear. But I bumped into Tony Abbott in the street in Sydney. I said to him, oh, Mr Abbott, I'm hearing you supporting the NDIS and I'm so pleased. And he said, well, normally I'm Mr No, but on this occasion I'm Mr Yes. <laughs> and so I had a press club appearance about two weeks later and I quoted it. He then picked it up and quoted it everywhere. So it became his phrase. Well, I've met millions of politicians over a long, long life because I'm quite elderly by now. And, I, you know, a lot you don't get past the goalposts because there isn't that groundswell. You have, to, like Medicare had a groundswell, which was pretty good for its day when you think about it. This was about... 50 times bigger than the Medicare groundswell. Like, it was really... And I don't think a politician in Australia could deny it. Rhonda Galbally, a board member of the National Disability Insurance Agency, and before her, Bruce Bonner-Haiti, the chairman of that same organisation. Change Agents is a collaboration between The Conversation and the Swinburne Leadership Institute and Swinburne University's Department of Media and Communication. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or listen on SoundCloud. Production today, Heather Jarvis, Sam Wilson and Jonathan Lang. I'm Andrew Dodd. Hope you can join me next time for Change Agents.